Well, I had the privilege of uh, going to see some family in the past week and we drove down the 401 and many, many of you probably had the same opportunity and saw some of the carnage uh, from the big pileup last weekend. There were guardrails wiped out for large sections and cables all over the place. We saw uh, hoods of cars, bumpers rather of cars. We did see a, a big hood of a transport truck and an axle and a tire from a transport truck sticking out of the ground. And just, it was clear there had been some crazy, crazy accidents. And it was just, as you're driving by, it's kind of sobering. You think, okay, I gotta, I gotta take it easy on the road, uh, make sure that we arrive at our destination. And that leads itself well into today's sermon where we're talking about how to avoid crashing spiritually. Because the reality is that in the Christian church, people will crash in their spiritual lives in small and large ways. Uh, It's no surprise if you've been around for a while, you've seen maybe some people in one vehicle accidents, so to speak, crashing spiritually. That rarely happens. Most times your sin has an effect and influence on much more than just yourself. Sometimes we see Christians fall so catastrophically though that it's the equivalent of a 50 car pileup where they leave so much damage in their past, in in their wake, you could say, and not just for this generation, but also for the next generation. The Bible teaches it. It's very clear that spiritual crashing is a reality that can happen. And so fortunately, the scripture also gives us wisdom as to how to avoid that. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy chapter six, if you have a Bible, you can open it there and that'll be very helpful to you. 1 Timothy is a letter written by the apostle Paul to his his apprentice, Timothy. And he wrote a series of two letters actually. And 1 Timothy anyways, he wrote because he couldn't be there in person to deliver the message face to face. And so he, he sends him a message and he's saying to him a variety of things about Timothy's life and ministry because Timothy was setting up churches, helping Paul to establish churches and elders and deacons. And Paul wanted to instruct Timothy because there's lots of dangerous people out there that want to do harm to God's church. And also there's lots of snares along the way for a guy like Timothy, a younger Christian in the faith to his ministry. And so I've entitled this sermon, Game Plan for Ministry, in large part because this year, many of us here are involved in ministry and we wanna have an adequate game plan for how to avoid the snares, the traps of life in this broken and fallen world so that we don't end up crashing, so that we end up next year in this seat and hopefully maybe even some others around us in the seat that have stayed faithful to Christ. So 1 Timothy chapter six is where we're going. One other quick note is, This was written by Paul to Timothy because it's now God's word and was God's word. God inspired Paul to write those letters to Timothy. That means those words actually are also from God then to us. So when I read these words, it's not just me talking about some historic event that has no relevance for today. And it's not even me pumping up my own authority to say these things. When I read these verses, my hope is that you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, hopefully, would receive these as as if God were speaking out loud to you. When we read scripture, that's really what's happening. God is speaking out loud to us. And it's so important in a time when so many people are looking to hear from God. We certainly want to hear from God and it's right here. So as we look at 1 Timothy 6, we're gonna look at verse 11 and 12. We're kind of jumping in the middle of a, a paragraph where he has been talking about false teachers, people who have strayed off the path, 
people who love money, all that kind of stuff. And he's gonna contrast Timothy's life to that or the call for Timothy's life. So 1 Timothy 6, 11, it says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Before we actually talk about how to avoid the crash, which is largely what this passage helps us to do, I want you to just look at the address that Paul addresses Timothy with. He says, O man of God. Oh man of God, that's not insignificant. That's an important thing. He's contrasting Timothy's identity to the identity of the people that would be a man of wealth or a man of influence or a man of position. Certainly Timothy may have had wealth. He certainly had influence. He had a position in the church, but that's not his primary defining characteristic. It's he's, that, he's a man of God. Meaning, meaning if he's a man of God, he is, he's a servant of the King of Kings, he belongs to God. His whole life and ministry is oriented around who God is. And I just read that and then think to myself, could that be said of me? Oh, Chris, man of God, or could that be said about you? Oh man or oh woman of God, that you are a follower of God, that you're wholly devoted to him. It can be said, and some of us will maybe feel like we're unworthy of that. And that's true. In Christ, we are, however, men and women of God. And so this passage, while it's written to Timothy, again, read it as, but you, O man or woman of God, flee these things. And that really is the first step of obedience. If you wanna avoid crashing in life, spiritually speaking, there's gonna be some things you need to flee. And a good student of scripture would look at this and say, what are those things? What are those things? But they would also look and say, what exactly means, it doesn't mean to flee from something. Why did he choose the word flee? He didn't choose the word avoid. He chose the word flee. So it would be more like thinking, okay, there's a tornado coming down your street. Flee the tornado. Don't just try to avoid it by going one street over. Flee the tornado. Or if you're thinking about food, it's, it's not just like, you know, avoid fatty foods. It's flee from foods that have poison in them. They're deadly. It's dangerous. So the reason he uses the word flee is because whatever he's telling you to run from is so dangerous and deadly that it's important that you would flee. Now he gives it as a command because our selfish, sinful flesh wants to do the opposite. So whatever he's going to tell us to flee from is the very thing we probably want to pursue often in our flesh. But I know we're a, a room full of many wise people people who know at least enough to say, okay, if he's saying flee from those things, then then they're probably bad. So then the temptation might be that we don't flee or don't rather pursue, but that we just kind of stay passive about it. So you're like, well, I know I shouldn't pursue it, but I'm not going to flee from it because that takes work, right? That's hard, which is quite possibly a problem that we might have. Paul says though, hey, if you don't flee from these things, that's when you become the person that shipwrecks their faith, or he uses the words of wandering or straying or swerving or falling. So it's important that we flee. So a way to think of this is, okay, in your vehicle, crashing is bad. 
but you need to realize falling asleep at the wheel is what happens before you crash. And maybe you could think of it like drowning. We know drowning is bad. It's, it's awful. And you might just think drowning happens when you're not paying attention in the swimming pool. But drowning also happens when you don't flee from rising floodwaters. So the idea is the danger isn't something out there. The danger is actually coming for you. So that's why you need to flee. It's not enough to just stand passively. You need to flee because passivity regarding spiritual danger is a clear indicator of a Christian that's headed for a crash. When we get passive, when we don't flee, we're headed for a crash. Okay, so what are these things? What are the things that we are to flee from with that attitude now? We look back to chapter six, verses three to 10. I don't have the verses all up on the screen, but hopefully you have a Bible. First Timothy six, verses three to 10. In verse three, he says this. He warns Timothy about people with different doctrine. That's one thing to flee. He warns in verse four about people who have a craving for controversy and quarrels about words. That's another thing to flee. He warns in verse five about those who see godliness as a means of gain using your spirituality to get things other than God's glory. Verse nine and 10, he warns about those who desire to be rich or who have a love for money. Okay, so five things at least that he is warning Timothy to flee from. And if you read his second letter to Timothy, he also warns to flee from other things. But for these five things, let's think about them in our context for a moment. Fleeing different doctrine. There are all kinds of people that want to introduce different doctrine. And that's why we did a series just recently called Heretics and the Battle for Orthodoxy, where Pastor Aaron walked through core doctrine, stuff that's so foundational to the faith, you can't get it wrong. It's very, very important to get that stuff right. But we have to be aware, there's people that want to put different doctrine in front of you. And elder, as elders, we're, we're careful to protect our congregation from people speaking different doctrine in the walls of this church. But what's different today versus when Timothy was being written, is you have access to literally the world of teachers about the Bible at your fingertips. At any moment, any of you could go online and you could listen to a sermon that's purportedly from the Bible, but that's actually producing a different doctrine. And so this is something you as a Christian need to be hyper aware of to flee from different doctrine. So how do you know if it's different doctrine? Is it just different from what Pastor Aaron and Pastor Chris say? No, that's not what the scripture says. It says here in 1 Timothy 6, 3, it's the kind of different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So it doesn't line up with what scripture says, what Jesus said, and it doesn't produce godliness. So here we kind of got to take a moment to think about what's the fruit of the doctrine? What's it lead to? If it leads to somebody that is prayerless, seeking their own glory, they probably got the doctrine wrong. If it leads to a life of dependency on Christ where Christ is exalted and glorified, it's likely the doctrine is right. Make sure it lines up with scripture, obviously. So this is where we look for fruit. And this is actually helpful for the next thing he warns about. He warns about fleeing from controversy, not controversy rather, but the craving for controversy craving for controversy and quarreling about words. Now, if you're a good student of scripture, again, you're going to be aware that there are times we need to engage in controversy. 
There's times when it's worth it, the fight. But craving the controversy, that's what you got to run from. When you start enjoying the controversy and you like it and you're looking for more of it, danger, you're going to crash. And looking out for quarreling about words. Words are important. Definitions, I think everybody would agree today, definitions are so important. Our society is throwing out basic definitions, reinventing words, twisting them, and that's very dangerous. But we don't, don't want to get into the habit of quarreling about words where we're spending fruitless hours debating something that's not leading anybody to be edified. Actually, I thought this whole idea of defining words was more recent a phenomenon, but it's happened for years and years and years. In 1925, I was reading a, a book by a well-respected theologian, and he was defending the idea of defer, defining the term faith. And it, it's really helpful, a little short book, defining faith. But he says this in 1925, he says, indeed, nothing makes a man more unpopular in the controversies of the present day than an insistence upon definition of terms. So back then people were, I don't want to define that term. I don't want to define it, but I want to use it. Same problem today. So we do have to define terms, but we want to flee from quarreling about ter terms, Qu flee from craving the controversy. So thinking about why we're involved. Earlier in 1 Timothy, we're not reading this passage fully, uh, but earlier in 1 Timothy, the apostle Paul warns Timothy about people who go off studying myths and endless genealogies. And we all probably have somebody in our life that kind of tends this way. They love the, the rabbit hole, right? They go down and they just study all kinds of stuff and they're no, they're no further along for it. And the reason Paul warns about it, he says, people swerve off the track all the time because they end up in speculation. It's all, it, it's all we, we don't know. It's speculation, it's out there. And it's not the faithful stewardship of God that Paul says that Timothy's to be about. So watching out for those things. The point is, take this. You can be busy in ministry thinking you're doing a lot of good by just stirring the pot and you're not actually producing fruit in the keeping with godliness. Nobody's blessed by it. You're not edified by it. You just have a whole bunch of useless facts in your mind that are not actually advancing the kingdom of God. So be careful of that. Avoid that, flee that kind of thinking. The reality is some of us here sin by saying too much and some of us sin by saying not enough. Some of us get into all kinds of quarrels and fights that are useless. And some of us don't stand for the basic things we need to stand for. And so this is a matter of wisdom where the best advice I can give you is find some older man or woman of the faith who has produced fruit that accords with godliness and watch the way they live. Watch the way they live and take advice from them. And we're all gonna get this wrong. We're all gonna sometimes say too much and sometimes say too little. And so be open to correction. And when the correction comes and you offer correction to others, just lovingly point to the fruit. What's it actually doing? I don't think it's achieving what you want to achieve. The final thing God wants to warn us here of is to flee the love of money because it's the root of all kinds of evil. And this is a, a, a huge topic. We could do countless sermons on it and we're not going to this morning. The love of money is the root of the evil, all kinds of evil, the love of money, not money itself. Money in it of itself is not a necessary evil. 
It's not something you could just, oh, I wish I didn't have to deal with it. It's a good tool that God has given to us. And all of us have to consider what our orientation is towards money. Do we love it or do we love God and love others and use money to love others and love God? But I just wanna ask one question. I think this is the question the text brings out to us is would your life reflect a love of money? So if somebody else was looking at your life, would they walk away concluding they love money? Or would they walk away with the very different conclusion, they flee from the love of money? My, my guess is most of us, we would be comfortable to say, well, I don't, think I, I don't think I love money, but would somebody be convinced that you flee from the love of money? Jesus talks about money probably more than anything else because it's this root issue that crops up into so many other types of sin. They all trace back to, you're not content with what he gave you, what he's entrusted to you. People will ruin their ministries, yes, but also their marriages, their children, their families, their reputations, all to make a buck. So he's one warning us about the love of money. I, I love Proverbs 30 verses eight and nine. This is, this is true wisdom. It says a prayer there, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That's Proverbs 30 verses eight. You can highlight that. Most of us would be glad to pray that God would not make us poor. Very few of us would actually ever pray, please don't make me too rich. Because if I'm too rich, I actually, I know my own heart. I'm gonna start wandering from you. I'm gonna be like, I got it all together. I don't need you. The word of God says to flee. This is the word of God says to flee from the love of money, from a craving for controversy, from different doctrine, all those things that are destructive to your faith. They're vices that you need to run from. This message this morning is not just, hey, run from a bunch of bad stuff. Because if you just run from bad stuff, you'll notice this, you all always run into more bad stuff. If your focus is simply on running and escaping evil, you end up running into something that you didn't know was evil before. So you need to set your eyes on something positive, a virtue that God calls you to run for. And so that's where he goes with Timothy. First Timothy 6 verse 11 says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Everything that we've said about flee and how important it is to flee and not be passive is exactly the opposite and applied to pursue. Pursue isn't just a, uh, a passive kind of like, oh, if I get it, great. It's an active all out. It's a 100% focused. I'm going to pursue these things. And the list to pursue, while it's concise, just a few words, it's incredibly extensive. So first we are to pursue righteousness. Now, when God saves someone, he actually does this wonderful thing where he takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfect track record, and he imputes it to you, a, a sinful person. He actually gives you the perfect track record of Jesus, even though you didn't earn it. It's a gift. And that way, I like to think of it like a report card. You've written your test and you failed multiple times and you have a big F on your report card. Jesus has passed every test. He has a big A on his report card and you've swapped report cards because he's given it to you as a gift. That's awesome. You look at the A and you're like, this isn't me. No, it's Jesus. 
Jesus did that. And when God looks at you, he sees the perfection of Jesus and he treats you according to that, which is totally undeserved. And it's an awesome thing. That kind of righteousness, we call that positional righteousness. It's yours, but your day-to-day actions don't match up with your positional righteousness. And so that's why we are called to do something called pursue righteousness, not so that we can earn our salvation, but basically that you would in your day-to-day life act more in line with your positional righteousness. So basically your report card is an A plus and you got to start doing your tests and writing your tests through the strength of God more and more, like maybe you were an A or a, an F. Now you're a, you're a D student, a C student, a, a B student. You're increasing to match your, your, uh, your practice with your position. So we call this practical righteousness, not because the other one's not practical or useful, but because this is the one you practice. Okay, so your report card, positional righteousness, it's a gift of God, you can't earn it. Practically speaking though, you need to live that out and behave more in line. So we're called to do that. The temptation here though, warning you, is to take the idea of righteousness and make it about self-righteousness. So you're like, okay, I'm supposed to pursue righteousness. Well, what is righteousness? Well, it's right action to God and men. Who determines what's right and wrong? Well, I do. So I'll do what I feel is right or wrong. And I become self-righteous. You've met the self-righteous person. They're the person that has arrived. They are perfect because they are the perfection, the standard of perfection. We don't want that at all. We want to pursue Christ's righteousness. So God determines what's right and wrong and we pursue that. But this is the warning to you as well. When you pursue Christ's righteousness, you will find that other people label that as self-righteousness. And that's, it's understandable. It's because of sin, right? So person A is actually behaving more and more like Christ every day. Person B isn't yet. And the sin in them wants to call that self-righteousness because they don't have it, right? They want to, or maybe, not necessarily a desire, but maybe they look over at somebody else and they can't imagine the power of God working in a person that way when the power of God hasn't worked in them that way. So the idea of like motives, right? You look at somebody who does something and it appears to you like it must be ill-motivated because you could never imagine doing that same thing without that motive. And so you label it self-righteousness, but that's not actually the case. So be careful of this. Be careful of A, you could be labeled self-righteous and you're not because you're actually just pursuing righteousness and it's just irritating to the person that's still living in some sin. Or B, you could label somebody as self-righteous and they're not. So at the end of the day, you just go back to you before God. Lord, what's my motive for doing this? I want to do it for your glory. I don't care if it makes other people uncomfortable. I'm going to do it for your glory. That's what we're looking at as we pursue righteousness. And righteousness, Proverbs 13, 6 reminds us, guards him whose way is blameless. Righteousness is actually a protective mechanism God uses to protect you from crashing spiritually. We're also to pursue godliness. There's obviously some overlap in these terms, but godliness here has the sense of devotion or piety towards God. So to be in awe of God and behaving like it. So some of people as mentioned before, they saw godliness as a means of gain. So they're like, oh, I've figured this out. I've got God's system figured out. So if I am godly in the right circle of people, they're gonna actually promote me. 
and they're going to pay me. And so I can use godliness as a tool to get ahead in life. And that's not what our aim should be. Godliness is meant to be a tool to give God glory, that our life would reflect him more. And true godliness will show itself when you don't gain, when you actually take a loss trying to be godly. True godliness though does require pursuit. That's the point of this passage. Pursue godliness. Don't just pretend it's gonna happen by osmosis. You have to actively pursue it. Like working out in the gym, you have to work at godliness. We're also to pursue faith. So faith is an ability to trust completely something that you cannot see. It says in Hebrews that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So it's believing without seeing. Second Corinthians says it's walking by faith, not by sight. You can't see it. So there's gonna be many times in your life and ministry where you cannot see the way ahead by human wisdom, by your own intellect, but God is directing you, desires to direct you, and you need to trust and walk by faith. Proverbs 28, 26 reminds us that whoever trusts his own mind is a fool. That's like, read that again. Whoever trusts his own mind is a fool. So many people do that, even in the church. They're like, I have a good idea and they trust that. That's not walking by faith. That's walking by human intellect. A simple exercise if you wanna pursue faith is simply obedience. God said something, we do it. Whether we understand it fully or not. And that is obedience that builds faith. We are also to pursue love. This may sound obvious. It's here for a reason though, because we so easily forget to love. Love is not a feeling that we have for others so much as a decision to put their needs ahead of ours. First Corinthians 13 reminds us love is, it's not envious. It doesn't boast. It's kind. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love never fails. It goes on and on and on. Love is incredibly hard. And if you have a ministry this year that's devoid of love, you will crash, but very likely you will cause many other people to crash. You will do incredible amounts of damage. It's better to just not even bother than to do it without love. Because it's just as Corinthians says, it's like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's way more annoying. And so do it with love. But interpret love again by scripture. Love isn't passively being nice to everybody. Love is sometimes giving the harsh rebuke. It needs to happen. Paul's motivation in telling Timothy to stay and to rebuke people who are teaching a different doctrine, he says is love. So sometimes love is tough. We know that. We're to pursue love. We are also to pursue steadfastness. When I hear that word, steadfastness, I just, in my mind, it just, it, it pictures an older seasoned believer, somebody that has walked the walk, that they have been faithful for many years. They've either finished the race well or they are finishing strong. And I just think of that, they're steadfast. They're not blown around, around with anxious thoughts about all kinds of things. They're, they, yes, they still struggle with sin, but they have, they have progressed so far that they have so much to teach, but they are pursuing the Lord still. They're not retired from ministry. They're the people that still pray for lost people. They're the people that still engage wherever they physically can. That's what I think of when I think of steadfastness. And that's something that I think would be an encouragement to us to consider because I look around and this room, I know many of you 
personally. And I know you are walking with the Lord, pursuing righteousness, godliness, love, all those things. And the encouragement is just keep doing it. Steadfastness. Okay, pursue steadfastness. Pursue what you have been doing times another 50 years. You can do it. We continue to walk by faith and not by sight, remembering that many will crash because they think it's a short walk of intense faithfulness and then it's over, but it's not. It's a long walk of faithfulness. And sometimes the gains aren't as big. Sometimes it requires holding on, but that's what builds steadfastness. And then it finally says we are to pursue gentleness. This quality is also listed in the fruit of the spirit list in Galatians 5. And it's opposed to our flesh's tendency to be harsh or easily angered with other people, to kind of just power through and get what we want now. Gentleness is, some have said, the idea of strength under control. It's when I'm with my children, I have the strength to crush them in some ways, but I'm gentle. I'm not using that strength. I have the strength in my words to do great damage, but I'm harnessing that. You can't actually be gentle. The idea of being gentle implies that you have the ability to be harsh. And so we want to be gentle. And the, a practical way I think of this to, to really set it in, again, get on the road and it's icy conditions and you wanna make a turn. If you gently curve turn, you're gonna make the turn. When you just harshly turn the wheel, what happens? <laughs> you crash every time. And so it's just thinking in ministry, for your sake and the sake of the people following you and that in, are influenced you, by you, use some gentleness. It's an interesting thing that the passage right next to gentleness, if you look at your Bible, the next word in line is fight. <laughs> so he's like, pursue gentleness, fight. And you're like, what's up with that, right? Well, what he's talking about is not so much fighting in terms of combat, that's not really the sense here, though there is a spiritual war going on and we do have to fight like that. What he's talking about here is contend for the prize. In other words, if you're in a race, think about fighting to get to the finish line. You're not fighting other people so much as you're fighting the resistance, the obstacles. You're fighting your muscles that are screaming out saying, quit, quit. You're fighting that way. It's like pursuing, it's intentional, and it's all encompassing. So if you examine the life of a longtime professional athlete, you'll find somebody who is, their whole life is centered around this idea of winning the race, right? They're, they're trying to achieve the win and they'll, they'll beat their body into submission so that they can compete and win in the race. So the question for us is, what does a win look like for us? We're fighting the good fight of the faith. Where are we going? What, are we, what resistance are we overcoming? What are we trying to actually do? Well, largely it looks like pursuing and fleeing like we've talked already, but I'd like you to think, especially in the context of a church family here, I want you to think about not just your walk with the Lord, but outside of that. So what's a win look like for you this year? So a win in part you might think is, well, I wanna be here next year. I wanna be still faithful to the Lord walking with him next year. But I'd invite you to just think about the two seats beside you. Are you thinking about a win this year being the two people beside you here next year? Or maybe there's an empty seat beside you and are you thinking about the fact that a win would be seeing that seat filled with somebody else that has not yet heard the good news of Christ? 
that would be a win. So it's a win when you think about other people's finish line as well, not just your own. In fact, Timothy was like that. A huge part of his ministry was not just, hey, Timothy, make sure you don't stumble and you make it across the finish line. No, it was actually make sure, hey, in your teaching, make sure you're really careful because you'll save yourself and your hearers. You can cause a lot of damage with false doctrine. So get your teaching right. He's thinking about other people. And so for us this year, a win is not just you crossing the finish line or you making it another lap. It's you bringing others along with you, not letting them crash. If they crash, helping them get back on mission and following Christ. Right now, I sense in our church, the need is primarily just encouragement. Keep going. Some of us got to get on the, on the track, but many, so many of us, I believe, are seeking the Lord, are following, are putting this into practice, but need encouragement. And so encourage one another, look out for one another, think about how your walk is influencing others. For us to walk with Jesus and do ministry, we must give up a lot, but it's worth it. So that's my encouragement to you today is just, it's worth it. And I'm younger than many of you. So I'm looking to you and saying, it's worth it, right? It's worth it. No, scripture says it's worth it. So I know it's worth it. It is all worth it for what we give up to pursue him. One last point here is that we must, in our fight and fighting the good fight, we must give up things. So we must give up not just sin, but also Hebrews tells us, lay aside the weights that cling so closely. And again, that, the mentality of a runner, a runner's running the race. They don't take along a backpack full of all kinds of their goods with them. They lay those weights aside so that they can run better. And here there's some things that we need to drop this year that are hindering us from running the race well. It's different for each one of us. So don't bother looking at the person next to you and saying, well, he didn't drop it, so I don't have to drop it. Doesn't matter. Your race is different. So what are you running? What's holding you back? You before the Lord saying, what's holding me back from running the race well? And drop it. Drop it. It's not necessarily sinful, but it's not helping you. And it's only hindering your walk. Finally, we must take hold. First Timothy 6 verse 12 says this, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul's final command to Timothy in this passage is to take hold, to take hold of eternal life. That's the prize he's running for. And there's two things that are said about it. One, it's the eternal life to which you were called, which is reminding him of God's play in the salvation of Timothy and how God has called you, what a what an honor that is. But then he says also the thing that you made a good testimony about, a good confession about. That could be pointing back to either Timothy's baptismal confession or perhaps when he was ordained for ministry, he made a confession about this eternal life. Either way, Paul's pointing to the past and saying, you made a, you made a confession about this, stick to it. Take hold of that, see it fulfilled. Don't just drop it halfway. When we look at this, we look at the term eternal life. So, Take hold of eternal life. What's that actually mean? So eternal life, we might think of as just life eternal, right? It's eternal existence, but it's more than eternal existence because each one of you here in the room, absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt, will exist eternally in one of two places. You will exist in eternal life or you will exist in eternal death in hell, separated from God. And it all 
comes down to what did you do with Jesus Christ? Did you place your faith in him and repent of your sin, of the sin that causes death and separation from God? If so, God's free gift is you get to spend eternal consciousness in eternal life. If not, then it's an eternal death. But Paul is not telling Timothy here, take hold of eternal life in terms of eternal existence with God in heaven. He's not talking about so much about the stuff that happens after you die. It's something that Timothy can do in the here and now. So there's another aspect to eternal life we have to look at. And that's found in John 17, verse three. It gives us some clues. It says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay, so eternal life isn't just after you die. Eternal life actually invades the present moment. You can have eternal life today. And in fact, many of us here do have eternal life today, right now. You're experiencing eternal life as you know, not just in a knowledge way, but in an intimate relationship way, God the Father and Jesus Christ, his son. So it's not just about after you die, eternal life invades the present. This is radical and in some ways awesome, not in some ways, in many ways awesome, because this is where we can have the joy of fellowship with God, where we can have the peace that we'll have in eternal life. You can have a measure of that peace today, not the full expression of it. You're still, you still have sin that plagues, but you can have the peace. You have forgiveness today. You may not feel it, but you have it. You have the direction that God gives. You have the companionship that God gives. Again, yes, there's the hindrance of sin and that won't be done away with until we die and we spend eternity with the Lord. But we have eternal life today. It's now and it is yet to come. This is amazing. So I don't want you to get me wrong. Heaven will be better. (laughs) Heaven's gonna be awesome because there's no death, no dying, no sin. But you have a huge problem if you're waiting for everything in heaven and you're experiencing none of it now. Because then the heaven you're looking for maybe isn't the heaven you're going for. The heaven we're looking for is not, some people think of heaven as eternal physical pleasure with no consequence. So it's like where you can eat and eat and eat and you never get fat. It's where you can drink and drink and never get drunk or get a hangover. That's not, that's not heaven. That's not what heaven is. Heaven for us as humans is gonna still have some limitations because we are human. We won't become God. You won't become infinite in knowledge in heaven. You won't become omnipresent. You will still have some limits, but you will have full and unhindered fellowship with God. And you can today have that fellowship with God, not to the full extent, but you can have it. And so this is a, a really important thing. Eternal life begins in the here and now. And this is what Paul, I believe, is getting at with Timothy. Take hold of eternal life. Eternal life invades the present. You can have that fellowship with God. You can have that taste of what the future is. But so many people, they have access to it, but they don't take advantage of it. They don't, what scripture says is like appropriate it in terms of take advantage of the eternal life that we have right now. So church, let's be different. Let's take hold of the eternal life, which was given to us by a gift of our loving Lord. Let's flee from the vices that take us off track, pursuing the virtues which protect us 
and let's fight the good fight of faith for the glory of God alone. Paul concludes chapter six with these verses. It's a charge to Timothy. And I think it's a charge that can be aptly said to us as well. So listen to it and receive it that way. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, keep the commandment. The commandment being the commandment to keep the faith, fight the good fight. This is your charge. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen.